when David and I were doing uh, pilgrimage tours to India on a regular basis, we would go every year and sometimes every other year. Once we might have even waited three years. And I, I said to him at that point, India is like a necessary vitamin for my physical and spiritual well-being. And if I'm too far away from it for too long, I begin to be depleted in vitamin India. And I need to go back <laughs> and get, get more of it because there's something karmic for all of us or for many of us. It has nothing to do with time, place, or people. Okay. Now, today we are actually up, we're doing class 28, and we are actually uh, scheduled to start with sutra number, uh, book number two, sutra number seven. However, I'm going to go back to sutra, book number two, sutra number four, because I have had some very interesting ideas sparked by some of the last sentences in that sutra, and I would like to use you to um, test them, <laughs> see if they make any sense, okay? Before I do any of that, does anyone have any other questions that are lingering that need to be answered? Yes? Last week you were talking about things being God's will and that nothing happens that isn't God's will. And I have difficulty with that, and I, it may be around my understanding of what you mean by God's will. When I think of God's will, I think that God wants this to happen or that to happen. And I have difficulty with seeing God wanting all the horrible things that happen in the world and more understanding if God you know, absolutely is aware of everything that happens, but not that God wants this person to kill someone else or for children to be starving or people to be suffering, accepting that God wants us all to achieve self-realization. Ah, except that God wants us all to achieve self-realization. Right. Okay, so do you need to say more or can we go on from there? Okay. I recently, um, I was reading this wonderful book about Ananda Ma by Bhatika Mukherjee. She's written several and they're all wonderful. Um, and somebody asked her, uh, Ma, Anandamaya Ma, she was the joy-permeated mother described in Autobiography of a Yogi. Great saint in India. She lived until 1982. Swami Kriyananda spent much time with her when he lived in India. Um, and someone said to her, if everyone in the world um, you know, focused on creating goodness and being good, would this world become perfect? And Ma spontaneously, without any thought, said, but it's already perfect, just like that. Now, of course, the question is, what is this world trying to achieve? The ego's perception is that what this world ought to be trying to achieve is a painless ride for all of us. Ego likes pleasure, comfort, ease. And ego prefers not to be challenged. It likes to just be settled down and coddled. And ego wants its likes and dislikes to be honored. And it considers, ego considers it bad if its likes and dislikes are are not fulfilled. And ego considers it bad if, if everything gets to be too tough, if ease and pleasure are taken away from it. So when we say a perfect world, we mean a world in which nobody suffers, in which everything is really comfy, and it all goes just so. As a rule, that's what we mean. And Anandamayama said, but this world is perfect, because this world is designed to inspire each soul 
to reach for God realization. And it does a darn good job of that. So perfect is just in the, in the eye of the beholder. It's a, com- it's a complete turnaround on that point. And every question, which I get asked in a hundred different ways, why do the little children suffer? Why does this? Why is that? It's what is the point here? And are, the, and are you really suffering if you go to the surgeon and he gives you open heart surgery and he cracks your rib cage and you're in terrible pain for a really long time, but as a result, you can stay in your body and keep practicing Kriya instead of dying prematurely. Was that a bad or a good experience? If as a result of being impoverished and a starving child, you begin to understand things that you didn't understand before, and it gradually increases your awareness, expands your consciousness, and eventually drives you to God-realization, was it a bad or a good thing that happened? And, and this is what, I've said this before, but it really has to be said, there's an, a, strange, it, a strange lack of, of application of fundamental spiritual truths in the question in this sense. Look at all those terrible people. Look at all the bad things they're doing. Look at this poor innocent child suffering. Like, what happens to that bad person? Golly shucks, he's going to be born as a suffering child. And we're upset because he got away with it over here, and we're upset because he's getting it back over here. If we believe in karma, if we believe in reincarnation, that's what we're looking at, friends. And when it's just a little child who looks so innocent, or if that little child is you, and you're born into really tough circumstances, it takes an heroic effort of detachment and clarity of mind to realize that there's nothing wrong with this picture. That this would not be happening to me if in one way or another it wasn't perfect. And perfect, not pleasant, you know, not not painful, but perfect. That was, I, I, you may have heard me talk about when I had to go to a, a funeral, a very large Jewish funeral, someone who had died in everybody's estimation prematurely, and there was no context, no context. This was tragic, unmitigated tragedy, zip, period. And the rabbi actually fund, did some fundraising at the beginning of the funeral to ask everybody to donate to research for the particular disease that had taken the person away, which I thought was both the most awful and the most interesting thing I had ever seen. You know, like, wow. You know, just like, yeah, this is really the moment. But what a weird moment. And, and I just, you know, I just had to sit there. David and I were in blue, and almost everyone except for one other person of the 300 people there was in black. And... Uh, Nobody wanted anything we had to give, so we didn't give it. And I was just, it was horrible. I was just in agony. And then I remembered, oh yeah, these are the kind of experiences that put people on the spiritual path. Of course, this is what happens. You put your faith in a world without God, and wow, you get smacked upside the head. That's what happens to you. And it it happens repeatedly. And then gradually you begin to build a karmic memory of getting slapped upside the head. And it occurs to you that maybe there's another way to be on this planet. And all of a sudden, all that anguish, even for the very people who are anguished in front of me, just evaporated. This is a perfect world. Nobody's actually suffering. 
They're all just going through what they need to go through. And yeah, we'd like to see them get on with it because you know, the devotee has a tender heart. But it's, you want to be like Anandamaya. Oh, but this world is perfect. Look at all those people having an absolutely miserable experience. But look at them, they're learning. They're balancing their karma. And so that's what God wants from us. God does not care at all if we're having a comfy time. He doesn't necessarily want us to suffer. Swami corrected that misunderstanding in me. God doesn't want you to be unhappy. Swami says like that pleading is the word that I use when I think of it. He pleaded with me because I was all twisted in my mind. God doesn't want you to be unnecessarily is how he put it, wants you to be unhappy. That's your idea, he said. But God wants you to be free. And as, as Swami said, he no more flinches from putting you through the necessary karmic conditions than a surgeon flinches when he cuts you with a knife. Okay, we've got two hands waving there, and Saranya looking <laughs> pensive. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. No, I... I... <laughs> I uh-huh. feel everything no, you're saying is so. Uh-huh. And as we raise our consciousness, mm-hmm. some of that other stuff sort of goes away. or It, it looks different uh, to us. Well, well like it, during slavery, for example, and all the, the Civil War and all that happened there, you know, we knew that people started realizing that wasn't right. And the consciousness was raised. Right? Well, in the right, nation? Right. No, but right now, you see, that's a very temporary condition. We're in Dwapar Yuga rising, so people are getting more and more aware. But if when we were living, or if we lived in Kali Yuga going down, people just got more and more barbaric. I mean, the question of the consciousness of the planet is not because we're getting any smarter. It's because the vibration of the planet is changing, and so different souls are attracted here. But there's no fixing it. It's going to just be what it is. And I don't like it much either. But every time I don't like it, I have to stand back and think, what is it? What am I not liking? Who am I, who am I, who am I accusing of not getting right. it right? You know? It's, it's, these, are, these are extremely important ideas. Because if you can't really see this, you will always be slightly at war with the spiritual path. You know, this is, this is so fundamental, and, and don't misunderstand. It's not like you get it and that's it. Well, I'm bored now. What am I going to go on to? But every time you waffle off of this, there is no answer except to come back to it. This is where God is wisdom has to play a part. You have to really reflect continuously on you know, how Sister Gyanamata put it so simply, it's death to the devotee to think she's been treated unfairly. Or anybody's been treated unfairly. And this is, you can call it the will of God. God wants you to be in perfect bliss. And he will do whatever is necessary to bring you to perfect bliss. And he doesn't care what it feels like in the short term. Because he's rescuing you. You know, he's rescuing you. It's like we're, we're in, the, in the ocean and, you know, we're about to drown and the helicopter comes and they put the harness on us. We say, oh, it's too tight. You know, I don't like it. It hurts my arm and it's not my color. <laughs> it's like, the, you know, the rescuer will whop you upside the head and tie you up and drag you out of there. That's pretty much what's going on here. 
<laughs> Marilyn had a question first. Mm -hmm. Well, it occurred to me on Sunday that um, th things, my, my, my beginning wasn't very happy. And, and uh -huh. all of a sudden it occurred to me on Sunday that um, my soul, maybe I was a helpless baby and a helpless little child, but my soul was never helpless. Exactly. Good point. And, and so I got exactly what I needed to the point that I, I, didn't, I didn't break, but I was able, so I was able to grow up and understand, start to learn from those experiences. And so it's kind of like being a child or a helpless old person or whatever happens, crippled or whatever. It's just another condition in the, it's another part of the divine play. You're writing a play, and, and so, you, so you have to have an age for the person and, you know, and, and create the circumstances so that they'll be helpless or whatever's going to happen. And so that's what it was. And it, exactly and it had nothing right. to do with my soul. That's exactly And right. my soul stayed there. That's exactly and, it, right. and now my soul's helping me, or whatever. I don't know what it is, but I'm learning. But you're learning. <laughs> I'm now, learning. You know, that's that's very brave, and that it's very hard. Chi you know, if 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 childhood is tough on you or on somebody you love, it's a, it's a very it's a very solid challenge. It's a very solid challenge, and you know, the soul gets the soul doesn't take that thoughtlessly, and it's not an accident. And it's not a punishment either. No. That's when Swami said once the Jews deserved what happened to them and nearly blew the roof off the room. And then he went and explained, what does the word deserve mean? Wow, he got the lead role. If anyone deserves it, he deserves it. Oh, he got that big promotion. If anyone deserves it, he deserves it. The word means what you want it to mean. It can mean like you're being punished, but it also it equally means you're being rewarded. It just means that it was the right thing to happen. It was a great opportunity for the Jewish people. I'm not condoning anything about it. You have to understand me properly, which I think you do. But there are, if, if karma is ever true, it's always true. If God is in charge of this world, he is always in charge of this world. And believe me, you can search that one for wiggle room as much as you like. You will not find any wiggle room in that. Master himself said, I have an argument with Divine Mother. Why must her children suffer? So you don't have to really think it's a great plan, but it seems to be the one we've got. And if we enter into it with the right spirit, it seems to bring about the results that we want too. So is it bad? Yeah, very complicated. Is it unpleasant? Oh, you bet. But unpleasant is not the same as bad. But, but the baby part of me feels so old now. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's the weirdest feeling. Mm -hmm. It's like it doesn't. I know. I know. I'm still having knee-jerk reactions, but basically, it's not that important the Very history good. anymore. I just need to deal with the present. Very good. To this morning, I was talking about to some group about my 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 subconscious mind just confuses the heck out of us, doesn't it? It's got this little story in there, and we a lot of times we don't know what we're dealing from. We have no idea whether we're in you know yesterday or 500 years ago, or now. That's where the eternal now becomes such an issue. What is really happening now? I had this terrible karmic relationship with this person, and whenever I would eat food that they cooked, I would sometimes I would actually literally throw up. And I mean, I think there was a poison, a relationship of poison somewhere in the past. 
you know, just like the, the food that anything, the time I took in, in anything that they might have been able to poison, I was afraid that they'd done it again. Swami said that he had, no matter how sick he was, he would always resist vomiting. Vomiting to him was really terrible. And I mean, just ridiculously so, when vomiting might release the stress, but he never wanted to. And someone said to him, well, he'd, he'd been eviscerated at one point, and every time he came close to that, he, it, it put him back into that situation. It's just like, you know, we don't know what we're dealing with a lot of the time. Adam, this is a cheerful subject, isn't it? <laughs> Sri Ram, Jay Ram. <laughs> I um I just had a thought, and I, w- I wanted to know if if you think it's true that most of the time that we resist something being God's will and resist what's happening to us as karma or whatever it is, and just resist it in whatever way we do, would you say that's usually because we're only looking at a very small picture and we're not ever looking at yep. the large? Because it seems to me whenever I look at the big picture, it it makes perfect sense. Yeah, and we, when when you look at that one moment. It doesn't make any sense. And I was thinking of the story that Swami told of the dentist who was drilling into his cavity and was, you know, sympathetically perspiring and stopped before the cavity was all drilled out and refilled it. And then they had to go in years later and this was his childhood in Romania. His childhood in Romania. Yeah. And he was he didn't he didn't drink milk because he had colitis, Mm -hmm. so his teeth kind of cheerfully rotted, and. But as a child, when they would have to drill him without Novocaine, he would scream so much that the dentist would feel sorry for him. Mm-hmm. So as a result, a lot of his teeth were filled without the uh, decay being taken out. So, of course, later it all had to be redone and redone. And, so yeah. thank you for filling that in. Yeah. But it just came to mind that um, that's kind of what we, you know, yeah. we, we scream that we want this to be done, we want this to be done, but we're not even thinking of the larger picture. What is this trying to teach me? What am I meant to learn? And Yep. You know, what, what will ultimately transcend it? Anyway. You guys are getting the story here. Thank you. Nishkama also has his hand up. I think Chidambara was. Okay, go ahead, Chidambara. God isn't doing anything to us. He's not doing anything to us, no. Nope. Nobody's doing anything to us. It's exact. We are not victims. We are not victims. We are not victims. Yeah. You know, we, we, we've said from time to time that it's, uh, it seems uh, it's really a tough road and it's, uh, it's really hard to take some time and, and boy. It's, it, it can be a really tough life. You know, if you really get that uh, it is true that whatever is happening is happening for one reason only, and that's to push us in the right direction to the thing that we're, our, our soul is, is longing for with unbelievable longing. Um, when you really get that, isn't it wonderful? Yeah, but that's exactly where you need to go. I remember a period in Ananda's history when, I was, when Ananda was Ananda Village, one ashram. And we were... Um, we were in a, a, a cycle of struggle. The specific circumstances I don't remember, but there was an atmosphere of struggle over the community, and there was a, a whole lot of feeling of how hard the spiritual path is. And I remember a community meeting, and I said to the group, how many of you just right now could give me uh, two quotes from Master about how tough the spiritual path is? I said, how many of you could give me two quotes about how joyful the spiritual path is? Mm. <laughs> I said, it's just, you know, there's as many quotes on the positive side. It just depends on the habit of the mind. And, it, and that's why when people have looked at Swamiji's life, oh, your life was so hard. Was it? You know, I didn't see that. What, 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 what are you talking about? It was just stuff that had to be done. 
I'm skipping ahead to sutra number 10, you know, he just stopped referring things back to himself. It just had to be done. Stop, stop referring it back to yourself as well. Here it is. It has to be faced. Looks like everyone is really upset. Now peace has to be created. Exactly. That's what he said to me when I was weeping. Oh, it's so hard. Well, he said you weren't putting out any energy to overcome it. Now you know you have to work harder. You should be glad. You know, I wanted to say that's a weird way to look at it, but I had the sense not to. <laughs> but it was. It just was a complete flip. Oh, that's right. It was, it was ruling my life and torturing me and would torture me for incarnations. Why would I think it's a bummer that I have to face it? Where is my brain? You know, please fill in the cavities. Don't just take out, don't, don't take out the decay. Just put the cap on so that I can suffer more later because that's exactly what we're saying. I haven't suffered enough. I want to suffer more later. You all are close to where, where I was revisiting Sutra 2.4, so my intuition on this was not entirely wrong. So more comments or questions before we go forward? I mean, last time when I was dealing with this, I did talk about it, but there's a specific point here. This is the last paragraph of 2.4, and the, the sutra has been, ignorance is the field on which all imperfections thrive, whether dormant, superficial, sporadic, or sustained. I covered the sutra sufficiently last week, so I won't go there. But the paragraph that I particularly want to go back to is sustained imperfections, the longing, for example, for a romantic relationship or for children, children of one's own, qualities and otherwise, in other words, that are perfectly normal for worldly people, but obstacles for anyone who is seeking God. So he's not talking about the desire to murder or, you know, or to do really evil things. He's just talking about normal human desires but that, that are obstacles for God alone but are not obstacles for, if that's not your goal, can be removed by the gurus or by God's grace, but usually have to be indulged until experience itself teaches one that, outside of God, there is simply no fulfillment. Well, there's, there's several things about this that I wanted to uh, touch, so let me think about this. Um, a little, the first part of it is, is it's important to realize that our desires are instructive to us. And, and one, of the, one of the important things on the spiritual path is to have the self-honesty and the humility to just recognize with complete relaxed consciousness, this is how I feel. And he's, he's putting it in here just like this. Usually these simply have to be indulged. There's, there's no shame in recognizing that I don't, I haven't yet worked this out. I mean, I had, this woman was uh, with me once and she has, had had a long-standing desire for a romantic relationship and God apparently was not listening. And when he did listen, um, he sent really unfortunate opportunities to her. And so it was an ongoing saga that was never resolving itself happily. So she was telling me something like, I just tell myself that God alone is sufficient. I said, you don't believe that at all. She said, no, not at all. <laughs> I mean, it's like, don't bother. It's like, this is an experience that you can't solve intellectually. You know, mostly it has to be lived through. 
You can have the interesting theory in your mind that maybe I don't need to live through this, but if it is a sustained imperfection, then you might as well just get comfortable with the fact that you're probably going to have to live through it and just kind of watch interestedly from the sidelines. You know whether or not this is going to come or not come, what's going to happen here, but have the self-honesty and the humility and the lack of shame. One of the, you know, one of the fetters of the heart that Sri Teshwar mentions is, is shame. Why should we be ashamed for not yet being God-realized? Because that's really what you're saying. I'm not an avatar. Oh, I'm, I hope no one notices. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, that's really how people behave. You know, yes, I am. <laughs> there, was a, there was a woman at Ananda Village in the very early years, and... Uh, she always wore white. I mean, I've mentioned her before. She always wore white. She always spoke very softly. She always carried one of Master's books. <laughs> and whenever people would get rowdy around her, she would. And the book. I thought she was so boring, unbelievable. You know, she went on and did whatever she did, but. Um, there was another one who was slightly similar who actually had a mental crack-up and then became really nice after she kind of just broke out of that. But th- there were two that were sort of played that. But it was just like... Because there was nobody home. There was just this play-acting at what you're supposed to be when you're a devotee. And I actually learned from people who knew her before that she had a very <clears throat> colorful past. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to a friend, somebody I didn't know even who knew her, and I just mentioned so-and-so. Her? He said like that and filled me in. <laughs> I mean, so in that sense, she was working, trying to balance it out, but there's nothing to be ashamed of. You know, attitudes that are perfectly normal for worldly people. There are obstacles on the spiritual path, but we can't get, we can't, there's no, there is no way around the rock. We're just going to have to tunnel through it. It's, there's no shortcut except just to be who you are and work your way through it. The way through it is all the things we're talking about here which is, it's okay, this is how I feel. It's either being fulfilled or it's being frustrated, but one way or another, we're just living through it. Or I do feel like, you know, there's a point at which it's more sporadic than sustained. You know, this is the point you may, inter- you may still have an inclination for a personal relationship, but still, you'd rather join the monastery because it's become sporadic. You know, and then you find out whether it's sporadic or sustained and how it works. Now, that was one aspect of it, which I felt was really just important every chance we get to really be able to look at, at how to relax and accept ourselves. Remember Swamiji's uh, comment when he said when he first moved to Mount Washington, it maintained the quality of a hotel. The devotees checked in and checked out. they you know, just come and stay for a short time and then leave. There was Master in the body, there running the ashram, People had the karma to find him. They had the karma to be initiated. They had the karma to live with him. And then they left. I mean, from our side, it looks incomprehensible. But Swami explained it perfectly in a way that is all too easy to relate to. In the presence of Master, there was so much illumination that people saw their own reality. And they ran away from Master because they did not want to face themselves. That's how Swami put it. And their subconscious mind gave them all sorts of reasons why that was a good idea. But it was really just the self protecting the self. 
That's why it's extremely important not to be ashamed of your desires and your flaws. You know, whatever they might be. Um, Swami tells the story of the nun who, against Master's wishes, left the ashram to get married, went off to get married. It turned out to be disastrous, just as Master had predicted. She ended up with a child. After a few years, she and the child came back, and Master took them back into the ashram, Mount Washington. And one of the more straight-laced nuns who'd never wavered said, you know, how dare you come back after defying Master like that? And the nun just looked at the nun who was back, said, what should I have done? Just worship my mistakes for the rest of my life? Like, you know, just, what do you know about it? And Master also, interestingly, there's the story of Dirananda, Swami Dirananda, who was Master's boyhood friend, whom he brought from India to America to help him with this work and put him in charge of Mount Washington. And in the end, um, he decided that he was as important as Master and he didn't, want to be, he didn't want to be subservient. He took a lot of money from Master and eventually even sued Master for more money, betrayed him in a really big way, and, and eventually left the ashram and went off and became a college professor. And, uh, Masters, and then he's the one to whom every year Master would send a box of mangoes the story in the path, and every year the disciple would turn the, return the box of mangoes unopened. I mean, he, he disdained his guru so completely that he wouldn't even open the carton, but he returned it like that. And Master said he will never achieve liberation until he reconciles with me. He said so, but it will, it will take him three lifetimes, and then he will be liberated. Three lifetimes! Wow, that is not many, friends. When you start counting, you know? And so on one hand, you can think, oh, what a terrible fallen soul. On the other hand, it's going to take him three lifetimes to sort it out. I would really like to be told that I'm three lifetimes from the end of this story. That would be like a really nice thing to hear, wouldn't it? Because you can't tell. You just can't tell. You don't know, you don't know how much of the nail is still in the wall. You just know what it feels like now and that you have to just keep pulling. And... To be ashamed just is one of the fetters. It's one of the things that keeps you back. It, that, that is, I mean, you have whatever it is that you're ashamed of, which is a problem in itself, but let's not double it by adding embarrassment and an unwillingness to stand in the light because otherwise our subconscious mind will find a reason to run away from the light. You may have heard me mention this woman came to Ananda. For a while she had a lot of magnetism. She was a very promising devotee. Swamiji gave her a lot of energy and included her in a lot of things. And, but then she started declining his invitations. And this was her articulated reason. Because when I'm with Swamiji, I can no longer remember what my problems are. And I feel like I need to just keep working on them instead. What? You know, just a complete... And, and then just very quickly, she just wandered off. But that's, that's what we do. So we just have to like, okay, warts and all, this is who I am. The devotee who took Kriya and drank whiskey simultaneously, did Kriya and drank whiskey. Can't do anything he said about my addiction to alcohol, so, but I can at least do something positive. And, and the, the true story is he did Kriya with one hand and drank whiskey with the other and eventually looked at the Kriya, looked at the whiskey and put the whiskey down and never picked it up again.
He was just right out there in the open. And again, when someone challenged him, Master speaks against drinking, you shouldn't be drinking. Well, here I am and I am drinking. So what are you going to do about it? You know, there it is. We have very strong rules at Ananda Village against drinking. A couple of times in the course of history, there's just been people there who just had serious problems. You know, one man, I remember one man just crashed into Swami's house, just was the phrase, drunk as a skunk, is that how it goes? Otherwise, a very good de- devotee, but, well, he just had a really bad day, and he fell back, and this one was just so kind. You know, sure, just, you've fallen into this, but we'll just, we'll take you forward. I remember once also, slightly related, when Swamiji himself would give Kriya initiation, and the community was so small, we always, in Ananda Village, you really couldn't get away with anything. Most of us didn't have cars. We didn't have, we all lived on the same property within sight of each other, Everybody knew where everybody was all the time. There was just no way you could, no way you'd get away with anything. And so this man didn't show up at Kriya. Swami said, you know, go find out why. So I went to him and I said, Swami, noticed your absence. He said, just, just as bold and as happy as could be, I didn't feel like bowing down to the gurus last night. That was what he said. I delivered the message to Swami. He said, I can understand that. <laughs> and just like, here I am. Tomorrow I'll be better, but today I'm not. There you have it. Is that now? There's a whole other point, though, that I wanted to pull out of this paragraph. So, is there any other comments or thoughts? That was my actually by way of introduction. And maybe this is this is one of those dilemmas that I myself have tried to sort out for many years, and I somehow feel that I see the answer in this, and I'm I'm going to test it on you. Okay. I I do not. You know, the, um, I'm, I am a very peripheral part of the healing prayer ministry. And, and healing, although everything that we do in a sense is healing, I am no expert in the field. So I, I want to start by saying that I haven't really applied myself deeply to this. As things begin, so they continue. When uh, I was beginning my life of sharing Master's teachings, Shivani and I were together, and Shivani had a passionate interest in everything related to healing. And so it's like sort of she took that wing and I took other wings of the story. But it was just karma. That's the way it went. However, in the position that I am in, I have many times had to, had to help people with a, a unique and complicated aspect of healing, which is the phrase I will call expect a miracle. And expect a miracle is even pop culture. You know, there's lots of pieces of art that all say expect a miracle on them and, and a lot of people make a big point how to, out of expect a miracle is how you show your faith in God. God is capable of anything and therefore expect a miracle. Now, in a very abstract sense, you can see, sure, why not? It's faith building, it's positive. But many times in the specific I found myself caught in what has been to me a slightly unresolvable dilemma that I just haven't been able to figure out. For example, what if your child has some, you know, incurable limitation? You know, the child maybe is, is just mentally doesn't have the full mental faculties. Maybe there's autism involved. Maybe there's some debilitating disease that's just going to prevent this child from 
growing up in what we expect to be a normal way. Now, I'm, I know enough families that have gone through this or similar circumstances, and there's this, this period of time where you have to figure out what you really have and what the, the actual reality of this is. The fear of a diagnosis is something that many parents go through. They don't want to know for fear that if you put a name on it, then you have it forever. Um, I've never been there. I've, I mean, I've not in this lifetime lived in those shoes, so I'm not going to comment about anything like that. But then afterwards, there comes this thought, because I'm a devotee and I believe in God, you know, this condition will change. And that the devotee begins to decide that that's the proper way to, to, to relate to this. Now, I, from the outside, just from a simple, objective, medical, uh, evidence-based concept, think, my, I don't think so. You know, I just, I don't see where this is going to come from. And it's not that I have no faith in God's capacity to turn water into wine, resurrect Lazarus, any of these things can happen. It just doesn't feel like it's going to. It feels like something else is completely going on here. Now, this is where I come to this very interesting phrase in this book, you know, and everything Swami goes over this word by word. God, um, you know, it can be removed by the gurus or by God's grace, but usually um, we have to be indulged until the experience itself teaches one that outside of God there is no fulfillment. So I, I suddenly sort of see a, an answer to this, which is, yes, of course, it can be cured by God, but usually we have to face into whatever makes, it, makes us so desperate for it to be different. You see, that's the imperfection. Why am I so desperate for it to be different? And that's what we've been talking about here. All the evidence is in front of me that the soul that is incarnated into my family is going to have a different life experience than the one I expected. That all of my plans about how this are going to work out are not going to be fulfilled. The imperfection is not necessarily that that child's life is going to be a different life. The imperfection is my uh, fierce attachment to things being other than they are. Right? And even for the child himself or herself, using that as a continuing example, who's to say that this is a bad thing? From our perspective, it looks like a bad thing, but who's to say whether it is or is not? What do we know about what that child is experiencing and needs to live through? You know, what karma he's working out or she's working out and what great positive potential is going to come from this. And so, even though it can be removed by Guru's grace, usually we have to live through the experience to understand that there is no fulfillment outside of God. And, and why are we so attached to it being changed? Because we believe that our fulfillment depends on whatever condition. The same exact thing when uh, someone has a, a fatal a condition. I don't mean when you first go to the doctor and he tells you that you have cancer and at that point you just write your will and go into hospice. It's not like there's no place for a dynamic willpower. When Happy Winningham went through her long saga of having AIDS, and she had AIDS a little bit earlier on in the whole drama of AIDS than many people did. 
And as she put it, you know, it had, she had been, she'd had near, near death and return experiences several times and didn't have the slightest fear of leaving her body. There was no anxiety on her part about dying, but there were things she could do to stay in her body. And she was like by then in her 40s, maybe. And she was a devotee on our path, living in Ananda village. And she, she went to Swamiji and just sort of asked him, you know, like, what am I supposed to do here? Am I supposed to struggle to live or can I just happily go and die? She said, this condition is like having a bad flu all the time. It's not pleasant. And I, I put this into my book about Swami. He said, you know, if you shed your body, you're just going to have to reincarnate again. He was honest enough not to tell her that this would be her last round. And she didn't even pretend that it was. He said, and then you'll just have to go through the womb and then babyhood and then all the things that you have to learn and finding your place in the world just to get you back to your spiritual family, back to your spiritual practice, back to doing Kriya again. He said, why waste all that time? He said, you're here, you, you've got it all, as long as you, can, you feel you can continue to make progress in this body, either by Kriya practice itself or by service or by devotion, at the point in which the body becomes an insurmountable obstacle. He said, that's the point when you can let it go. Now, what I'm saying by that is, it's not like we become fatalistic. So I'm going back to the other example. The, the two examples that I have met most often are terminal illness and abnormality of the mind or of the body. That seems congenital, born with, lifelong. But the death of a loved one, you know, or the death of oneself. It seems to me that the death of oneself seems to be, for the most part, easier to accept than the death of a loved one. Although there was one example in our community of someone who died and died very courageously, but never allowed anyone to talk about their death. It was very difficult. The expect-a-miracle attitude sort of precluded a relaxed acceptance also of what was going on. And I'm, I'm really, I don't want to judge, because I have never been there, but I wonder... And I have wondered about this for a really long time. And just finding this in here, that of course God can cure it. To not expect him to cure it is not the same as not believing that he can cure it. And you're not betraying God by not expecting him to cure it. You're just saying, well, look what we're going through. Isn't this interesting? And what we're trying to overcome is the expectation in our own heart that any condition is required for my fulfillment. Even to stay in my body or to have certain people stay in my body or the people around me to come out a certain way. And you know, when Swamiji was speaking to a woman who, was, who had a terminal ailment, um, she said, what should I do? He said, think about light. She said, should I try to get well? Should I not try to get well? He said, try to stay in the light. Perfect answer. And that became her, her, her guideline. Whenever, you know, because she could feel it. Certain things seemed to take her out of the light. And that, it wasn't a question of well, not well, affirming, not affirming. It was that as long as she felt that she was in the light, that was all the matter. And I, she took that right, right to the other side. You know, it, it just became all about light. Whatever was happening, well, I'm just going to stay in the light. Because if I stay in the light, I'm, I'm cooperating with the divine. And if that light heals me and changes my circumstances, fine. And if instead, as usually happens, 
this imperfection has to be indulged. Is that, that's how Swami used it? Yes. We usually we have to indulge it. We have to experience this tragic loss. We have to live through it because there's something in it for us. Now, does that make sense? Yes, Adam? Yeah, it, it, I've thought this so many times, and I thank you for bringing it up because it's something that I've like wrestled with that, you know, of course we're praying for people, but at the same time, what are we really praying for and what should we be praying for? So I guess maybe in, in continuing this, like, w- what have you come up with as maybe a better way to relate to it? Not even to try and get other people to relate to, but, you know, because you mentioned the, the healing prayer ministry in the sense of asking others to pray for someone. And, you know, I've, I've prayed for other people many, many times, but... Um, I mean, most of the prayers I do are just, you know, blessing a family that I, that I know and love, but in the sense of illness or something. If, but if you want to be dynamic in it, what, um, I mean, even what scientific research about prayer says is that the prayer in which you essentially send light and energy and dynamic capability to people heals them faster than if you pray that they're the operation that the stitches mend. And the way... And then there's the other side of it, which is um, uh, the woman named Peace Pilgrim, who wrote a book. Um, she was a, an American woman, very, very saintly woman, who, who woke up one day to enormous healing abilities, just started healing everyone around her because she could. And then uh, in one particular case, a woman had a debilitating illness like MS or something like that, and she healed her. She was, you know, she becomes well again. She goes dancing with her husband, and while she's out dancing with her husband, he whispers in his ear that now that she's well, he's leaving her. <laughs> of course, immediately she began to get sick again. Um, and that, that helped Peace Pilgrim to realize that, wow, it's not just a question of taking away symptoms. Healing and symptoms are not the same thing. And so she pulled way back and realized that before she changed water into wine, she had to make sure that it was the right thing to do that. Merely because she could didn't mean that she should. Because real healing is freedom from delusion. And remember that story about Shankaracharya's disciple, where the woman was so nervous about doing something? She said, but, so, but you know, Guruji, what if I die? And he turned to her and said, die. And she did. She just died. Boom, fell over just like that. And when I was reading that story once, it occurred to me, well, of course, he was on the other side with her. And he said, well, now what? You know, so you died. Now what do we do? It's like, what is really supposed to happen here? The ego thinks everybody's supposed to get better, everybody's supposed to look like everybody else, and all all difficulties are supposed to go away. Who cares? He wants us to be free. And if we need to just grind down into something, so if you give people light then their soul can use that energy in whatever way they need. Now, and you've heard me express this in other contexts, I can't always be that neutral because especially when people you love are suffering, it's a bummer. And and this I learned when my parents were going through their last years and that was when I came up with the prayer, God, whatever you're trying to teach them, you need to help them learn it. And that's that's the light and energy I sent. You know, you need to help these people learn it. You know, and then I prayed for that they would have receptivity, devotion, and wisdom, and preferably soon. 
<laughs> because you can't pretend the same thing. You can't pretend to say, oh, you know, whether my daughter lives or dies, it's all the same to me. Whether my father becomes senile and suffers, it's all the same to me. Not at all. Way, way not true. But you want to, at the same time, you don't want your freak out to get in the way of their realization. Okay? So, I mean, I've used the whatever it is you're trying to teach them, get on with it, Lord. That one is real dynamic. It's real dynamic. And give me the courage, you know, to help them and not rush out like a madwoman and try to protect them from their own destiny, which is not really helpful. Yeah. Any other thoughts or comments? Okay, let's breathe for about... Oh, excuse me, Heidi. Receptivity, devotion, and wisdom. I, I made those up. You can make up any ones you want. <laughs> you know, when I was dealing with my parents, I tried to think what they needed. And receptivity was a big part of it. You know, they needed to be listening. My mama, they listened. They both listened pretty good. I, when I started praying like that, there was a, 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 a huge, subtle, but huge shift uh, in them and in our relationship. Prior to that, I was trying to use my will to fix their karma. And they didn't like that, really. You know, they, they, could feel, they could feel me, even when I was controlling myself in their presence, they could feel me pushing on them. And, uh, well, you know, no parents like to be pushed on by their kids, but nobody likes to be pushed. I'll tell you a story about a friend of mine, a single mom who raised a teenage son. Raised, well, he wasn't a teenager, he was a baby. But he, when, he, when he came, she raised a son, and she used to do affirmations for him when he was little. She used to affirm, you know, these qualities and all these good things they would have. When he began to be 12, 13, 14, the puberty age, he suddenly became extremely angry with her a lot of the time. And, you know, at first she thought it was just, this is what's happening. But then she somehow sensed intuitively that there was some cause for it. And she realized he was feeling her affirmations. He was feeling her trying to push him into being something that she had chosen. And instead of continuing like that, she started saying, with the same mother's love, to Divine Mother, he's your child, not mine. You take care of him and take him where you know he needs to go. Same prayer, really. And as soon as she, she pulled back, then he stopped being so angry. You know, it's like, and he, he came out real well. <laughs> but I mean, he was, he was the right stuff to begin with, but... Still, it's very, it's very interesting, and I'd certainly found that with my parents. When I started praying for their destiny to work it out in their own way, they started liking me more. Yeah, very interesting. And I had the same satisfaction of, of uh, helping them. It wasn't like I was a sloucher or had abandoned them. I was just interested in their true welfare, not in, let me think, my comfort and convenience. Whoa! Because I realized that's finally what I was doing. Your suffering annoys me. Stop. <laughs> oh, wow, that sounds generous, but not quite. Not quite. Okay, let's take a just five-minute break or something. We're almost finished for the night, so. All right. Um, a lot of people had a lot of things to say. <laughs> about what we were just discussing. Uh, but one thought that came through there, which is really important, was, uh, you know, 
It can be removed by the gurus or by God's grace. And so you have to stop and ask in a very um, detached way, why would he create a miracle? There's a certain presumption in, in expect a miracle, as if it was all a matter of our attitude. This is, there's a lot of teaching, uh, which, you know, it, this is just the age we live in, and it's better than not. But there's a lot of very superficial um, teaching that, is, that when you analyze it, really just does not hold water. It sounds good, but it doesn't really work. I was saying in the early years of being in Palo Alto in the 80s and the early 90s, there was a lot of um, pop religion is the only way I can think of it. It was much better than not, but people had a lot of wrong principles. The idea that anything, because there wasn't enough, there wasn't enough or there wasn't any real understanding of karma, reincarnation, and what God's will really is for us. So there was the thought that we could just affirm our way into anything. And so people would try desperately to affirm wealth, to affirm health, to affirm youth, beauty, relationships, whatever they were trying, money, whatever they were trying to affirm, and it didn't work. And then they would come to me, to Ananda, and since I was the face of Ananda at that time, and they would explain to me why they were obviously worthless spiritual failures, because they were not rich, they were not healthy, and they were not married with a whole house full of happy children. And I had to try to explain that those principles don't work. They're just, they're not sufficient. I mean, they can work on a certain level, and some people can operate them, but there's just not enough there. There's not enough devotion and receptivity to a higher reality. It's all based, it's all a, a, a cleaned up, kind of sparkling, don't I look nice, form of ego, which is I decide what is good, and of course God God's point of view about this world is the same as mine. This is where we started. If everyone concentrated on goodness, would the world become perfect? But the world already is perfect. But that doesn't mean nobody suffers because we're all in delusion. And therefore, suffering seems to be what we have to do to get out of delusion, which is the whole point. So why would God do a miracle? What I was saying, the presumption of just expect a miracle as if you could just snap your fingers and God is there to serve you. And this is what a lot of this ego-based, well-meaning, but ego-based so-called spirituality is that God is there to serve me. And I just get myself focused and then he and the whole universe serves me, which is just another form of ego, egotism. Well-meaning people get sucked into it, but when I've talked about the progression of Ananda's role in the world, in 1987, when David and I first moved here, we were the only meditation center in the Bay Area, virtually. There was an ashram here and there, but we were the only ones doing what we're doing. I mean, well, even if we weren't singular, we were certainly part of a very elite handful. And if you wanted to meditate, you came to Ananda. That was virtually it. Now you can go to the library, you can go to the bank, you can go to your job. I mean, everybody will teach you to meditate. But it's not like our work here is done, you know, at all. It's that we have to move over now. And mindfulness meditation is getting super popular. Uh, A friend of mine in India uh, goes to the Davos Economic Summit. I mean, you know, the big Davos Economic Summit, the real deal. And he said that there was a 
and I can't remember now who was running it, but somebody ran a mindfulness meditation group every day, and that a lot of those folks came to it. I said, well, that's comforting. That's nicer news than I've heard in a long time. And then we had a discussion about mindfulness. See, mindfulness, there's no God in it. It's just me being more mindful of me, which, believe me, I favor that. It's not like I'm against that, but this is just a baby step. What Master taught was total devotion to God, discipleship to the Guru, Divine Mother as your most intimate reality, and we just need to move way over and start pulling society in our direction. We have to. This is why Swami put us in blue. He wanted he wanted us to stand out as people who had given our lives to God, and not merely sneak around as people who meditate, because <laughs> he just felt it was time. Because he could see too. That's that's where we're trying to go. So we have to be. So back to the the thesis here. The the point I'm trying to make is why would God do a miracle? And I, it was interesting. A friend of mine was talking about her, uh, someone who's very close to her, who she's, my friend is saying to me that so-and-so, and this is people who are outside of Ananda, the, the ones we're talking about are outside of Ananda. They're not devotees. They don't have any faith. I'm always telling them they should have faith that things will work out. I said to her, why would they work out? I said, these people are not putting out any energy to create any of the conditions in which things work out. They're not generous, they're not dynamic, they're not courageous. I mean, they're they're not doing anything that would cause things to work out. So for you to tell them, have faith that everything will work out, you're doing them a tremendous disservice. Tell them to cut their expenses and live more within their budget. That's what they actually need to do. (laughs) They need to exercise some discipline to magnetize the results that you're really looking for. So in one's own life, or in the life of people around you, why would God create a miracle? You know, what better, what better cause would be served by the miracle? And, of course, that's a very dicey question. That was what Peace, Peace, Peace Pilgrim said. You know, I can take away their symptoms, but, but should I? What better cause would be served by making them well than by healing their spirit, but not necessarily healing their body? And, in essence, when I was talking about what I prayed for, I prayed for the healing of the spirit. That's what Swamiji said to our friend who was dying. Stay in the light. Don't become afraid. Don't become depressed. Don't become sad. Don't become worried. Don't give in to the pain. Just stay in the light. Sister Gyanamata, 20 years of that. Master talked about you know, hearing her heart beating from outside of the room. And Sister Gyanamata says, don't heal me. I'm not asking for your healing. Just bless me. Swami said he never prayed for himself. He never prayed for any change in his condition. Even once, and he was so, when, when you cross that line, he was so strong. Something happened. He was going through some horrible physical period. Maybe it was when he had stress fractures in his back or something like that. But he was having really intense, hard physical problems. And then something small, really small worked, like he had no cavities or something like that. It was just a a change, like, like he was, his heart was failing, you know, but, but his ears had no wax in them. And I said, just as a joke, thank the Lord for little favors. He said, I will not. Just like that. You know, just like he wouldn't even take it as a joke. I will not. He said, whatever Divine Mother sends me is just what I want. I mean, just a little thing like that, a little comment like that, but he just corrected me very sternly, very exactly. 
this, this, why, why, what would it, what would it serve for God to take this away from me? See, a lot of times we're not actually asking to be healed, we're asking to be rescued. There's a big difference. And too often, unfortunately, without, you know, without drawing too sharp a focus on it, we have to be very careful. Is expect a miracle actually faith in God, or is it asking to be rescued from something that has to be faced? And then if God heals you or he doesn't heal you, heals them or he doesn't heal them, that's awfully nice. Isn't that sweet? Look at how fascinating this is. You know, Jesus did heal. Master was capable of healing. Miracles do happen. People have been healed in remarkable ways, saved and healed at many times. But when your own consciousness is going there, ask yourself, you know, what am I really asking? What kind of energy am I really putting forth? And if, if, if the desire is to be rescued... Ask yourself, why would God do this? Why would, he, why would I even want him to? Oh, please stop drilling my tooth. Just put the cap on it. Let it build up for me to face it later. When I was facing something really difficult in my life, I was actually writing the book about Swamiji. I was just having so much trouble. It just went on for a long time. And uh, I was tempted to quit at different times, but I just said to myself, you know, this, I, what at that time amounted to a phobia about writing, has been the, the nemesis of my existence for all these years. I, I'm, I've, it's been enough of a problem in one incarnation. God, if I have to go through another one like this, you know, I just can't, I'll die trying. And, you know, eventually I just broke through and managed to get out of it. But why would you want to be rescued? There is no such thing as rescue. That's the, um, that's the, the, here we come back to karma and reincarnation, which when we were talking earlier about it needs to be understood in every culture and merely because people know the words. You know, you have to really believe it all the way through. And then there is no rescue. But that's not really depressing. That's just the way things are. You know, I'm never going to get out of this until I get out of it. Yes, Chittambara. Yes, when, when one of our friends was going through really one of the most sterling, one year we gave at Ananda Village, when a man went, I think he was bankrupt, he was sick, he was saved from a tragic accident. He did about four different really interesting things, and we gave him. We, well, actually, it was mostly when he, uh, was, was going, he was going down the hill from the Uber River in a big truck, and the brakes failed, and he went off the cliff, and the huge truck was stopped by a little bush. We gave him the most, we get the, the award was the, the most dramatic karma of the year award. And the small print said, although there is no specific prohibition against wishing, winning this two years in a row, it is not recommended. <laughs> but when a friend was going through award-winning stunning karma and just said, Swamiji, help me here. Swami just said, all karma ends. There you have it. That sometimes that's all you can say. Got myself into this, I'll get out of it. Sooner or later, might as well be now. Yeah. Don't want to do it next. I'm really visualized facing it all again. Yes, Marilyn. Microphone. Divine Mother's directing the play. And... Our job, or I guess I'll say my job, 
is to learn to accept the karma or whatever's happening. And it seems like an acceptance would be like like being centered, um, feeling divine bliss, um, feeling one with God. Being centered is one of the eight manifestations of God, and mm. you might not feel blissful or, or centered. Okay, but but it's, uh-huh. it's, there, there's something that happens when you get ex- there's an acceptance, <clears throat> and then um, then Divine Mother just shifts, and that might be what we call grace or a miracle. You know, it, it's like it's like you reach a point where you've accepted maybe one little teeny thing, and so then. It goes away, and we call well, it grace. Well, but, but but what you're saying is true, and let me let me answer it in the in let me articulate. I think what you're trying to say. We work and work and try and strive and study and struggle and so on, and then grace descends and it's fixed. And so, there comes a point in our spiritual life after we have enough experience that we realize that it's all grace. It's all grace. It's that, it's that formula that Master says. It's 25% the grace of God, 25% the guru's... No, excuse me, 25% the disciple, 25% the guru's effort on our behalf, and 50% the grace of God. But the 25% takes all of our energy. 25% of the total equation is 100% of our, of our right attitude and our concentration. But we all experience the fact that when it finally resolves, we are extremely aware of the fact that we didn't do it. If, if, if you're moving in the right way. And one of the problems of a non-deistic spiritual path is that when it changes, you think you did it, which is, is not uh, is efficacious in the long run, is understanding that, wow, it's all the grace of God. And this is why the more powerful people, spiritual people get, the more like Swamiji, they become more childlike about just how... And you see them working so hard, but they never really cognize that. They just feel that it's all the grace of God. And so, yeah, when that attitude comes, you just say, yes, that's exactly right. And then things change. It's better, it's worse. I don't know. You're in the light. Stay in the light. That's the key. I think that we're done. (laughs) <laughs> if there's more, we can start with it next week. So this week, we just did two, four more. <laughs> All right. God bless you. All right.